We're in 2 Kings 3. Uh, as you notice from the slide in front of you, this is part number 25. And so we're going to take a break in a couple of weeks, go through some Christmas stuff, and then in January we're going to go through some things, some other sermons that God has been laying on my heart. Uh, but we'll get back into, uh, back into this after some of the holidays. But I wanted to uh, bring this message to you because 2 Kings 3 is a very, very powerful narrative. Actually, as I've been studying throughout all of these books, all of these chapters that we've dived into, I've noticed a particular theme that I hope that you'll see come to the surface this morning once again. As we open this chapter, 2 Kings 3 introduces us, or either I should say reintroduces us, to the king of Israel, whose name was Jehoram. Now, Jehoram was first mentioned back at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Kings as the brother who takes over after his, his brother, Ahaziah, uh, fell out of a palace window to his death, basically. If you remember that narrative, you can read 1 Kings chapter 1 and see that. Uh, but Ahaziah falls, he gets sick, and he eventually uh, loses his life to that sickness. And now his brother Jehoram comes to the throne. He is now sitting as the king of Israel. And because his mom and dad were who they were, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, respectively, uh, you you can imagine the type of king that Jehoram was going to be. <laughs> His parentage didn't sort of give him much to uh, be hopeful. Of, give, doesn't give us much to be hopeful about when it comes to the type of rule that he's going to establish for Israel. And in fact, that's very much true. Notice again, verse one. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12. Years And it says, as the historian notes, wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. But notice what the historian continues to say, but not like his father and like his mother. Why? Because he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. But notice he continues, because now after this verse, you might be getting hopeful. You might be getting excited at the fact that he is now going to bring reform to a land, to a nation that was desperate for it. But those hopes are dashed very quickly, as the historian remarks, that nevertheless he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So his wickedness was... Slightly different, but it was still very much wickedness to the core. His paganism was still paganism. It was just a different form of it. He was still an idolater at heart. Yahweh had not reclaimed the hearts and the minds and, yes, we can say the throne of Israel. It was still very much, uh, he was still very much aligned with something else, with someone else. And we can, might say that slightly better than horrible is still pretty bad. And that's exactly what Jehoram shows us here. He's a little bit better than his mom and dad. But he's still very much a wicked king who is uh, so totally sold out to doing things against the word of the Lord. And now about this time, Misha, king of Moab, decides that his people should be a free people. Notice verse 4, and Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel an hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now you might know that Moab had been a district that had come under Israel's rule back in the days of King David. 
In fact, you can read 2 Samuel 8 if you want to kind of read where that happens. So it's been under the control of the king of Israel for hundreds of years. And now, Moab is, uh, or Misha and the rest of his brethren, his Moabite brethren, decide that because of this transitioning of governments, because of this transitioning of kings, that now is a really good time to win our independence. Now is a good time that we, as the Moabites, should be a free people once more. And of course, this, as you might imagine, didn't sit well with Jehoram. He's the king of Israel. His dad is Ahab, who had a very much a legacy of cruelty and power. And yet now this Moab, who this king of, of Moab, is now claiming that he can win his independence. And of course, Jehoram doesn't want to be seen as a weak ruler. He doesn't want to be seen as the one king who lets Moab go. So what does he do? Notice verse 6. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria and prayed. No, it says, he went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. This to me is a devastating verse. For especially noticing and remembering the king of Israel and what he was called to do. He was called to bow and prostrate reverence before Yahweh. And the authority that he put upon his chosen people. We can turn back to references in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and be reminded of some of the responsibilities that were laid upon the leaders of Israel. How they were to rewrite the law as a reminder to themselves of their position sort of in the hierarchy of where they reside. Yes, it's we are the kings of this nation, but we answer to a higher power. And like we saw with Solomon, here we see with Jehoram. That once again, the king of Israel in his wickedness has resisted all such uh, notions that he pays homage to someone else. He is the ruler. He is the king. And now see, we see him here going out and counting his men. Instead of seeking counsel with the Lord of all things, rather than seeking counsel with a prophet of Yahweh who could perhaps give him a word in season, we might say. He goes out and conducts a military census to see if he has enough men to combat this threat from Moab. Very interesting decision. One which I think reveals the heart of Jehoram. He is, he is relying on manpower. And notice this is further evidenced by what he does in verse 7. Notice, and he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab, Hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art. My people as thy people. And my horses as thy horses. This is a very interesting verse to me. Because it is almost exactly a repeat of what Jehoshaphat says to Jehoram's dad, Ahab, back in 1 Kings chapter 22. If you remember from that narrative, and we won't re-go, we won't go through that again. But in 1 Kings 22, Ahab makes war with Syria, and he goes to Jehoshaphat, and actually they come into an alliance once again. And it's interesting to me that Jehoshaphat repeats nearly the same sort of gullible pattern of aligning himself and sticking with someone he should have stayed away from. Ahab was a wicked king, and his son Jehoram was no less wicked. And it's interesting to me that in his perhaps naivete, in his perhaps gullibility, he aligns himself with this king. 
It says, yes, I will make war with you. I will go with you into battle against Moab. But it's interesting. I want you to remember Jehoshaphat. Because I think he is, I would say, the most intriguing, I would say, the most significant character in this entire narrative. Their plan, though, after Jehoshaphat pledges his resources, pledges his men and his chariots to Jehoram's cause. Notice their plan is to go and approach Moab from the south. They're going to take the long way. They're actually going to pass through the wilderness of Edom and approach Moab from the south and approach them at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Notice verse 8. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went and the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they fetched a compass of seven days journey. It's interesting to me that they do this, that they take this long way. Israel and Moab shared a border, but instead they pass through Judah and they pass through Edom to get to where they want to strike, uh, where they want to mount this counter strike. There's a couple reasons for this, perhaps. Uh, number one that kind of stuck out to me was just the fact that uh, passing through Edom would allow for Judah to sort of uh, gather some Edomites to their ranks. Of course, Edom was a district much like Moab that was under Judah's control. But I also think, too, that it would allow for this counterstrike to happen at a very less defended area. The southern border of Moab was not as well fortified as the northern region. And so it was a tactical decision. This long way, they're going out of their way. They're making the journey harder on themselves, at least at the forefront. And so they're making this tactical sort of strategic decision that turns out actually to not be that practical. Notice verse 9 again. The king of Israel went to the king of Judah and the king of Edom and they fetched a compass of seven days journey. And there was no water for the host, for the cattle or for the cattle that followed them. The three armies, the Edomites, the Judeans and the Israelites, they run out of water, which, as you can imagine, is a crisis. Three armies marching towards certain conflict, towards certain bloodshed, and yet now they are dehydrated as they approach this battlefield. And Jehoram is devastated. Jehoram is crushed. Notice, and the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these things, these three kings together, to deliver them into the hand of Moab. He sees this as nothing but God's active judgment against him and the other two kings that are with him. This is God's judgment. This is God's doing. How can he do this? How could he deliver us up unto our enemies? How dare this God? How dare him do this? Let us get together, make these plans, and then let our plans go into the dust. To me, Jehoram's complaint sounds very familiar to our own day. How often does God get blamed for tragedies in our present era? Tragedies that we see on headline news. And we're very, very, very quick to hold God responsible for those troubles that make the headlines. And rarely, I would say, if ever, as quick to give him credit for our blessings. We're quick to see God in all of the travesty and all of the heartache and all of the heartbreak that we see. And yet we are not as quick to say that God is in the midst of success and triumph. And I think it's indicative of the human heart. 
That here, when things are going down, as we might say, Jehoram sees and turns, sees it all and turns his face skyward and says, Where, where are you, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? And I think it's funny, I would say, in a sad way. How many who would ask similar questions are the same ones who might never ever darken the doors of a church or read a page of the Bible. And yet when tragedy strikes, what is the question? Why would God allow this? At least in Jehoram's case, he allows it for a specific reason. To bring him to a crisis of belief, I would say. Notice what happens. Jehoram is crying out. He's devastated that his plans are being derailed by lack of water. And notice, but Jehoshaphat says in verse 11, Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? He inserts this healthy dash of wisdom into the commotion. If Yahweh is going to be blamed, we should at least consult him first. We should at least go to him and not jump to conclusions to see what he's after. We should actually go and inquire of him. Where is there a prophet? Who can we seek counsel from? Is essentially his question. And notice what the historian says. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. It's interesting to me that in the sort of being reminded of where this prophet was and who this prophet was, it wasn't the king of Israel who should have had a close relationship with the prophet of Yahweh. It was one of his servants. It was one of his aides that attended unto him, reminded him and said, there is yet a king, or excuse me, there is yet a prophet in our midst. There is yet a voice of Yahweh that we can go to, and his name is Elisha. And Jehoshaphat said, he perhaps knowing about Elisha, he perhaps fully aware of his reputation, the word of the Lord, he says, is with him. So the three kings, as it says, depart, and they go down to consult Elisha. Remember what is happening in this moment. They are marching towards war to put down a revolution by the Moabites. And yet they're without water. They're in a dire strait, in a desperate situation, and now they are seeking to go out and make sure, and actually they're hoping for a miracle. Hoping to see, hoping against hope perhaps, that this Elisha can do something about their situation. But I love, I love Elisha's welcome, which is actually not very welcoming. Notice verse 13. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? <laughs> Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them unto the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. What a harsh verse that is. Not quite the warm, fuzzy welcome that they were imagining, perhaps. Instead of shaking of hands and embracing, hi guys, what's going on? He says, what do you have to do with me? Why are you here? You, why don't you go consult one of your prophets? The prophets of Baal or Asherah or one of the many other gods that you have allowed and supported in the nation of Israel. Why the sudden interest in what Yahweh has to say? 
And it strikes me, especially considering Jehoram's complaint, that here Elisha is, I think, resenting. Resenting this idea that Yahweh and his word can be treated as nothing more than a fire extinguisher. Things are bad. Things are looking dire. Where is God? Jehoram's entire life has had nothing to do with Yahweh. Nothing to do with Jehovah, the God of all things. So essentially Elisha's question to him is, so why would Yahweh have anything to do with you? It's a course and it's a harsh question. One that I think confronts us with some of our more natural sensibilities. But I think what is occurring here is the, the supreme significance of God's word is being shown to us. And how it ought to have an impact on all of our lives. Not just in emergency situations, so to speak. The word of God. The word that you have in front of you. This Bible that you have in your hands or open on your phones. It's not a trifling thing. It's not a trivial thing. That can only be opened or ought to only be visited when it's convenient. Or when it's cataclysmic. The Bible is a book for living. Not just fire insurance. It's not just a book to break the glass when things are going down. It's a book to live by. And in fact that's what this book is. This Bible in front of you. The word of the living God. It's a book of life for all of life. That imparts life to those who believe in it. And the God of it. I think this is what exactly Elisha is sort of intimating. Yes, perhaps by the negative reaction that he gives. But how dare us sometimes go into a crisis and we pull out our Bible and we have to blow off the dust on it. Because we haven't visited it in a while. We haven't lived in it like we ought to. And here Jehoram is evidencing that very thing to us this morning. He has not once lived in or abided by the words of Yahweh. And he expects Yahweh to come through for him. Elisha's words then rendered everyone speechless. (laughs) What have I to do with you? And even as he says in verse 14, those words which strike me as so incredibly curt. As he says, I wouldn't even be listening to you if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat who was with you. (laughs) And then he Perhaps frustrates these kings even more. Notice what he does in verse 15. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now pause for a minute. They're in this crisis. There's a war going on out there. And what does Elisha call for? He calls for a musician to play for him. I can only imagine these kings expressing and venting their frustration. We do not have time for church. We do not have time for a concert. What are you asking for? I can can imagine Elisha just proceeding with normal saying, this is important. And he's evidencing for all of the people that were in this war room exactly how life ought to be lived. Demonstrating for them that life lived according to God's word is a life of worship of him before anything else. I think it's fascinating to me that Elisha, yes, in this crisis... 
that's brought to his attention. What does he do? He pauses and he worships. This minstrel who plays was an instrument that, on which a musician would play words that he perhaps was singing. Perhaps he was singing one of the psalms. And he's evidencing here worship of Yahweh before anything else. It's sort of a directive against the king that was in front of his face. This is the proper priority for God's people. This is the proper order of life for those who are God's chosen. And yes, here in this worship service that Elisha commences, God's hand comes upon him. And he delivers this word to the kings. Notice, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and he said, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now I don't know about you, but if I was a king... And I had armies at my back, and we had a situation in front of us that was desperate, that was dire. And I went to a prophet, and I asked him for his counsel. And yes, perhaps after some pulling and tugging, he finally gives it to us. This would be the most unremarkable response I could have ever hoped for. (laughs) We are thirsty. We are dehydrated. What would you have us do? Go out and dig trenches. (laughs) And not just dig a trench, not just dig one measly little ditch in the midst of this valley. He says, make this valley full of ditches. Which is an interesting sort of command. It didn't really make much sense and still doesn't make much sense to me. If putting myself in Jehoram's shoes, what sense would it make to tell a bunch of dehydrated soldiers to go spend all night expending more energy digging trenches? There's a war ahead of them. And we're going to spend all night making this valley full of these measly little holes? How does that solve our problem, Elisha? How does that solve? How is that a solution? And notice, as is always the case, He ups the ante in terms of the faith that they are required to present. Notice verse 17. Amazing verse. Notice what he says. For thus saith the Lord. Ye shall not see wind. Neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water. That ye may may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. You're not going to see any evidence that rain is coming. There's not even a speck of a cloud in the horizon. You know, it would be one thing if Elisha was telling them this while a thunderhead rose above the mountains and they could see it. We better get busy. Get these valleys full of ditches to collect water while we have time. But I imagine these words coming under a bright, clear blue sky. No clouds, no sign of rain, and he tells them to dig. And then he further tells them, rain is coming, and you're not going to see it. You're not going to have any evidence of it. There's going to be no sign. But you dig anyways. And even further than that, if it can get even better, notice what Elisha continues and says. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He... Will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. 
And he shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. Notice, a sweeping promise of victory is given to these three kings along with the water that they so desperately needed. Water? You're thirsty? That's a piece of cake for Yahweh. That's a light thing for the God of all things. As an extra bonus, he's going to throw in your victory in battle. That's essentially how the verses read. And it's a stark reminder of the power of this God of all things. That he can, yes, speak words of promise. Speak words of victory. And he says to these men, quenching your soldiers' thirst is nothing. So, also, into your hand... I'm going to deliver your enemies. Also, into your hand, your enemies will fall. And they will not be able to strike against you. Amazing. I stop and I stare at this passage. And I'm reminded and I'm standing in awe at the extent of God's omnipotence. That word meaning his all-powerful nature. Nothing can stand against him. No one else can make this kind of claim. In all of the universe, this type of power is both unlimited and unrivaled. It cannot be measured and it cannot be quantified. Any sort of estimation that we give to the power of God is a microscopic estimation of it. It goes infinitely beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. And no crisis is bigger than this powerful word of Yahweh. And here he shows us exactly what he means by that. Because he can quench the thirst of three full armies as easily as he can guarantee their victory. Both are light things for him. Both are pieces of cake for this, wor- for this God of all things. And both are assured to them that this will happen. Think about this moment for these kings. Think about their desperation, their situation. No evidence of rain, the promise of victory, all of this information, all of these prophecies are coming before their eyes, into their ears, and I'm sure that they were overwhelmed. But as it's unrecorded, that we know though that the valley was eventually full of ditches. Because it says the next morning, verse 20, and it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered, that behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Misha, the king of Moab, He's then made aware of this southern offensive. So he mobilizes his forces. Notice verse 21. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were coming to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood on the border. And notice, they stationed themselves at the southern border of Moab to there make a defense for their revolution. And they happened upon this valley. This valley where the Israelites and their allies were stationed. And notice what happens. And they said, or excuse me, verse 22. And they rose up early in the morning and and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. 
The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites, so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their own country. What a turn of events. Those ditches actually didn't just satisfy their thirst. Those ditches actually led to their victory. Because as it happens, the sun rises on this valley and it tinges this whole valley that's flooded with water with a red hue. Such that when Misha sees it, he assumes that the three armies, they had some sort of political squabble. And now they're fighting against each other. And now this water isn't water at all, it's blood. And the valley is just now filled with the blood of these three armies after they have had an internal civil war. So to him, this is the best luck of all. (laughs) To the spoil, our enemies, they've defeated themselves. Moab, let's go and take what is ours. And yet, what do they find? They find an army that's ready for battle, ready for war. Misha is desperate, as it says in verse 25. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all good, the good trees. Only in Kirahath-seth left they the stones thereof. Howbeit the slingers went about and smote it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took him 700 men that drew swords to break through, even to the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. Sort of an anticlimactic ending to this scene, to the story. Misha sees what's going on. He tries to mount a counteroffensive as these three armies are pressing and pressing and pressing them further into Moab. Making them retreat. Eventually, as it says there in verse 27, he Realizes all hope is lost. And so in a last ditch effort. He sacrifices his son. His eldest son and heir to his throne. On the wall for all to see. Burning him in a grotesque pyre. On that citadel wall. Which was enough as it happens. To discourage any further bloodshed from this moment. Now. Why does it say that there's great indignation against Israel? This is a point that has belabored scholars for centuries. Whose indignation was this and who was it on? And all of, all of which to say, I think that there's great sort of evidence to say that this was an incredible portrait of exactly what the paganism that Israel had been longing for. The paganism that Israel had been groping after, this is what you get. This was sort of a stark reminder in the face of everyone that if you are pursuing a way that's opposite of Yahweh, here's the natural result of all of that. Eventually, eventually your only hope will be to sacrifice your only son on a wall, which is actually no hope at all. Which is to say that every king here in this moment was given a stark reminder that the things that they put their hope in are nothing when it compares to the word of Yahweh alone. But what are we to learn from all this? I have three 
points of application that I wanted to say for the end because I think they would resonate with you more if you got a sense of this whole story. This sweeping story of a revolt that's quickly squashed by this un, sort of unassuming way, these ditches that are dug in this valley that looks like blood but isn't. What's for us in this moment? First, the first point of application I think is this. God gives you a book for everyday life. I think what Jehoram shows us is a person who was using Yahweh in emergency use only. Again, like we noted earlier, it bears repeating, but that's not what God's book is for. That's not what this Bible is for. Something you can break the glass on when something is happening that you had not expected in an emergency crisis situation. God has not preserved this word throughout the ages by his Holy Spirit so that we can pull it out in a crisis only to put it back on the shelf when it's over. This Bible, this word that we have in front of us is a word to live by, as the psalmist says all over the Psalms, to delight in. His truth is meant To permeate every little facet of our lives. Not just sit and collect dust in this cubbyhole. I think think for me that's what speaks and stands out to me. Am I delighting in this word? Am I living in it? Is it a part of my life? Or is it my life? That's not just phonetics. That's not just semantics. This book is your life. It's the word of life. God's word to us and for us. It's not something that we can just slip in. Slip into our calendars that are increasingly, increasingly getting full. If you try to make God fit into your calendar, you'll very likely see him go out of it because other things are more pressing. Other things become more urgent. Other things become, uh, quote, more important. And we see, like Jehoram, what that can reap. A life in which God has had no influence, no part. Thinking about having, not having, thinking about raising three kids of my own has this pressed into the forefront of my mind. Am I fitting God's word into my life or am I making it my life? Are they seeing me envelop myself with this word? Matt Shively was talking about legacies this morning. Am I leaving a legacy of reverence for this book? It's a book for everyday life. But number two, quickly, and I'll, I'll end. I'll try and end quickly. God gives you a book for everyday life. Number two, God gives you a faith without sight. I cannot get over this fact, back in verses 16 and 17, how the soldiers were told to dig without any evidence, without any confirmation that there would be any uh, rain, that their efforts would prove worthwhile. Just dig. Just dig holes. Dig holes in the ground, and I promise you, God's word will come through. And yet, I'm stirred by the same thing, because that's exactly what God's word tells us. You and I have no other evidence that these things are true other than that this word says that they're true. 
You can pine for signs. You can seek out things, extra biblical things that can give you, quote, confirmation of your faith. But faith, at the end of the day, is boiled down to this. Taking God at his word. Do you is the operative question there. I think we often imagine that our faith would be better or truer or stronger if we had some sort of sign. Just give me, give me a writing on the wall. Give me a fleece that's wet and then a fleece that's dry. Remember Gideon did that in Judges chapter 6? He asked God for confirmation, by the way, after he had been given the promise of full victory. It was given to him by the angel of the Lord. And he goes out and he He requests God, I need a sign. And God gives it to him. And what does he do? I need another sign. And what does God do to that struggling believer? Does he give him an army that's full of mighty warriors so they can be, okay, I'm sure that I can go into battle now. No. He whittles his army down to 300 measly men who go into battle with trumpets and lanterns. He is assuring this judge, Gideon, your faith cannot rest on anything but what my word says. And this morning, the same is true for me and you. If your faith is evidenced and sort of confirmed by signs and and things that appear, your faith will be wobbly. Your faith will be weak. As Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That is every one of us here this morning. He's given you a faith and it comes through this word. And it's a faith without signs. It's a faith that is often just uh, sort of given because of his word. God gives us a book for everyday life. He gives us a faith without signs. But lastly, and this to me. Is amazing. Number three, God gives you a friend who's more faithful than any brother. You know, I told you earlier that Jehoshaphat, I think, is the most important character in the story, and I stand by that. I think what Jehoram found in Jehoshaphat was what the, the, what the wise man Solomon says in Proverbs 18 that he found a friend that sticks closer than any brother. Because <laughs> remember what Elisha says. If it weren't for the guy that was with you, I would have nothing to do with you. I would not look towards you. I would not see you. I would not listen to you. I would not give you any sort of audience. It's only because of the one that was with you. That's why I'm listening to you at all. (laughs) So we might say then that just this, this Jehoshaphat, this king of Judah for all of his good traits and bad traits eventually here becomes the channel through which deliverance was gifted to the wicked king Jehoram. He's sort of the vessel through which this blessed prophecy comes to him. And only because Jehoram stood with him. With all of his, with, with Jehoshaphat by his side, all of his needs were met and his success was guaranteed. Otherwise, he would be dead meat. Again, that's what Elisha says. As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. And isn't that just like our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
See, I think Jehoshaphat is one that can point us to Jesus. Because he's the one who stands beside wrecks and wretches like you and me. He stands with us, beside us, and he secures our victory just by his mere presence. On our own, you and I stand before God no better than Jehoram stood before Elisha. Jehoram stood there as dead meat. And you and I likewise stand before God the Father, as it says in John chapter 3, condemned already, condemned where we stand. That's dead meat. And by rights, God shouldn't even look toward us. He shouldn't see us because of how enveloped and and sort of suffused in sin we are. We don't deserve any mercy. We don't deserve any favor. We deserve to be turned away. We deserve to be thrust out of his presence. And yet what does this word that God has given to us promise us? It promises us, yes, there's a friend who sticks to us truer and better and closer than any brother. Then even he sticks to us closer than Jehoshaphat. And his name is Jesus. He's a friend who doesn't just long for your deliverance. He longs for your salvation. And my friends, he longs for your company and glory. And he doesn't have to accompany you at this judgment seat, but he does so because he loves you. He loves you that much that he's willing to stand beside someone that he probably should have stayed away from. To me, it's so evident of our heavenly friend. Our sins should have made God turn away. But we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And because of him, we are seen in a new way. How dreadful will the scene at the end of all things be for those who reject this heavenly friend? They, uh, like Elisha perhaps would have preferred, would have turned away this king. And at the end of all things, if you come into that great white throne judgment that's going to happen, and you reject the presence of this heavenly friend, you too will be cast out of that throne room. As it says in the word of the Lord, cast into a lake of fire. And yet, how different will that scene go for those who accept this redemptive presence of the Lord Jesus? They are those whose robes were so filthy and grimy and filled with all sorts of wickedness of years and ages past. They are the ones who stand there with robes white and clean and glimmering in the sun that comes from Jesus the Lord. And they stand there. With a victory that's given to them. Oh, I, I cannot help but see myself as Jehoram in this passage. A guy who is wicked. Who doesn't deserve anything from God. And I stand there not knowing what he might say. But because of my close brother. You know that's what Jesus is in the, in the scriptures. He's our kinsman redeemer. Because of him standing next to us. Standing next to me. Victory is given to me. Deliverance is promised to me. What a blessed truth and reminder this morning. 
that in this Jehoshaphat we're made to see Jesus. And in this Jehoram we can see ourselves as the recipients of a victory that we never had anything to do with. It was given to us. My friends, this is what this word does. It gives us a faith without signs. It's a book for our everyday living. And it reminds us of who sticks close to us. A brother who, unlike Jehoshaphat, lost his life so that we might find ours. Do you know this friend this morning who sticks closer than any brother? And is he standing beside you this morning? I pray, I pray this morning that you know this friend. His name is Jesus, and he will never turn you away. Let us pray.